Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. We would like to still be around and building an enduring company. A big part of why many of our techniques are building what we want is we hope that our children and grandchildren can be using Glint to grow their careers as well. So we want this to be an enduring company. Our mission is to help realize human potential. And we would like to be building a company that's here to last. That's one. Two is I think concretely, we see a lot of opportunities in the platform business and in our cross-border business. We want to double down in this markets, getting to market leadership in the market we're playing in, Indonesia, Vietnam, and also expanding out to new markets for cross-border recruiting, helping employers around the world onto that 300 million labor force in Southeast Asia and helping them to hire the people here. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leong, and Asia Pacific constitutes 60% of the remote and distributed work for US and European corporations and also within Asia as well, and poised to be one of the largest employers of the region. How does HR change in the world of AI? With me today, Oswald Yeo, CEO and co-founder of Glintz. We met years back when you're in the now the defunct JFDI incubator. Oswald, welcome to the show. Hey, Bernard. Hey, everyone. Good to see you. Great to see you. And you have come a long way, I think, with uh, your recent DVC race as well. So I wanted to start off by hearing your origin story because I do know you and your entire team since the days you started. So how did you start your career and how did you eventually end up starting Glintz? Yeah, it's really been quite a long while, right, Bernard? I think we first met about eight to nine years ago, 2014, 2015. That's right. So we, that was where we very much started, which is through JFDI, Joyful Frog Digital Incubator, uh, one of the earliest incubators here in Southeast Asia. They did a lot of good for the ecosystem really back then. I think my co-founders and I started Glintz as initially an internship agency. And... Initially, that's where the name came about as well, which is Global Internships. And that was the very, very first founding uh, story of Glint, which is an internship agency helping our friends to, to match up to startups. After GFDI, we all went off to college, initially thinking that we could both juggle our startup and the studies. But that's a terrible idea. So six months in, my co-founders and I decided to drop out from college in the US. And we all came back to Singapore to build the business. I remember Shriek's time gave us a very nice headline called Singaporeans parents' worst nightmares. And I showed that to my mom and dad very proudly. But that was in 2015. And that was how, how Gin started. We had no experience. This was not only our first company, but really our first job. So the first two years was us trying to figure out the right business model, sort of learning through the school of hard knocks. And we almost ran out of cash multiple times in the first two years. In the first three years, it was only in about 2018, I uh, decided to evolve the business model. I moved to Indonesia, lived in a Ruko shop house there for two years. And we evolved the model from just a graduate jobs and internships agency to really a full-time mobile-first jobs platform focused on the young and fast-growing 
youth workforce in Indonesia, especially in the digital economy as a starting point. We found that that was very underserved by, by the traditional job platforms and also the traditional recruitment agencies. Around that time, we realized that there was also a lot of demand for cross-border recruiting. So a huge demand for talent in places like Singapore, just not enough supply. It was very expensive. So we started to match up Singapore employers to our talent base in Indonesia and in Vietnam. We started to do cross-border recruiting. And that part of the business really took off. Today, we're one of the largest talent ecosystem in Southeast Asia. We've raised about $80 million so far to serve about 5.5 million users in the platform. And what really keeps me going is knowing that every day we're helping hundreds and thousands of people to find great career opportunities on our platform. And that's our mission, which is to help realize human potential. Mm. Over this period of time, I think you dropped out of school, you know, you went through the two, three years to find product market fit. And then essentially you went to Indonesia and successfully probably the largest market in Southeast Asia. And now you have raised a very, very big round. I suppose uh, you have notable investors, which we're going to talk about later in this conversation. Can you share the key lessons you have learned from this whole journey of building Glint? I think the importance of getting the right who before the what has been a big lesson for us. And, and that means really having the right people in place at all levels. I think having the right investors, advisors, and board members on board, having the right management team in place, having the right team and the right culture in the team in place as well is, is, that is essential. And, you know, in the first two years, I, as a founder, I wasn't so experienced and I wasn't so thoughtful about the people aspect. I would, we, we didn't have a sort of a conscious set of culture code or hiring practice. We'll just hire anyone that we thought they fit the bill. I would take money from any investors that would give it to us without doing proper reference checks. I would not build up really a very strong management team in the first few years. And so even though the markets were pretty good, we're always having people issues internally and therefore we were not able to execute the strategy as well as we wanted to. It was only a few years in that we realized the importance of really getting the right people. So we restructured the management and we restructured the management team. We built up a very strong board and investors, investor base that was really very helpful. And we also set a set of culture code that we felt was important for us to execute the mission and also reflected what we stood for. And we hired people against that. We promoted people against their set of culture code and we even fired people against their set of culture code. And when we got the right people, even through very difficult years and challenging years of like COVID, those were actually the best years ever for the company. We doubled every year because we had the right people on board. And this is really one of the first things I've learned, the most important lessons I've learned, which is getting the right people. And I'm very much learning that again, even, even in the current uh, climate, which is the importance of having the right people. And it's a never-ending journey. It's not like, I think the role of the founder and the CEO is constantly ensure that you have the right people in place, you have the right who in the company. And it's not a once and done job, brilliant. It's not like you build up the team after Series B, you're very happy with it, and then you, you, you take a step back and you're done forever. It, it has to be a constant evolution process to make sure that you bring in the right talent, you train the right people, and you shuffle people around as needed uh, as the context changes. And that's the lesson I'm learning right now as well. Mm, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. That comes from actually running, helping people with human resources, but you also think about taking the same lessons and to help to build your company to its present state. So we just get to the main subject of the day then. Um, Glintz and probably talking about HI, the age of AI. Maybe to start, I think you have earlier said the mission and vision of Glintz itself, but I would like you to share, to give us a comprehensive overview of what Glintz is currently doing and share 
is current vision and mission in a little bit with a bit more color to my audience yeah. who's watching this show? Sure. So, so what Glint is today is we are a talent ecosystem focused on Southeast Asia. There are three parts of the business. The first is we have a mobile-first recruiting and jobs platform focused in the emerging markets like Indonesia and Vietnam. And we take a mobile-first approach, a recommendation-first approach instead of a search-first approach to helping users find jobs. So traditionally, it will be very difficult for, for young talent to know what exactly are the type of jobs to be searching for or to be applying for. And even if they do, they'll be searching for the same types of companies that are most popular. And the long tail of employers and the long tail of companies will not receive the sufficient applications, will not get the right opportunities. And so what we have done is we have revamped the model to take a recommendation-first approach instead of a search-first approach. Think of like TikTok versus YouTube, right? But for jobs. In a sense, our users are recommended jobs based on their preferences instead of them having to search for jobs themselves. And sometimes we can then... And, recommend jobs that they also might not have been searching for themselves based on their interactions on the platform, based on the data that we have for them. And this also allows us to match them up to a long tail of employers that are actually the right mix for them. We also increase access to opportunities by enabling our users to chat with employers directly on the mobile app, which lowers the friction in this market. So that's the first part of the business. And today we have about five and a half million users on the jobs platform. Second part of the business is cross-border recruiting. Given our Southeast Asia focus and our presence, we're actually able to help employers hire anyone anywhere in Southeast Asia. How we do that is by firstly helping them access and recruit the right talent what we, and build up what we call talent hubs. So if I'm a Singapore employer, I realize that it's really challenging to build up and hire all my engineers in Singapore because it's so expensive and the supply is just not enough. We can then help them to build up an engineering talent hub in, say, Vietnam, where there's a bit more supply it's also a bit more cost-effective. We can also help them to build up a sales and marketing talent hub in places like Indonesia or Vietnam to build up a sales and marketing support function. We help them to hire the right people, access the right talent through our 5 million database, and we also serve as their employer of records so they don't have to worry about setting up their own entities. And we can reduce that administrative hassle and cost for them. Uh, the top part of our business is the technology and able AI hunting. I think given that we have a huge database, we then also help employers to recruit and to hit hunt the right mid-level, the senior level talent on the platform. And we do that a lot more efficiently given that we have our own supply and we also use technology to make the process more efficient. Mm. So now there's basically three different, different parts to actually help companies to do recruitment. The way I understood Glenn's and this is actually through my wife who happens to be a customer of yours is that you help to match meet talent, et cetera. But I want to go a little bit broader. How do you access say, the total market opportunity for human resources across Southeast Asia? And how is Glenn's poised to capture and create value for companies that are all within this market itself? Yeah, we were very excited about the, the recruiting market. Uh, potential in Southeast Asia, we estimate it to be a $5 billion net revenue opportunity by 2028. And that, that is then further sliced up into the three segments that we're playing at today. There is online recruiting, there is cross-border recruiting, and then there is the local hunting piece. And these are the three pieces that we have. I think Southeast Asia has huge potential when it comes to building HR tech giants of the future. Because firstly, it has one of the largest and fastest growing new workforce in the world. So that's a huge demographic boom just when, it, when we think about helping people find jobs, right? And people, all these people need jobs of the 300 million labor force in Southeast Asia. Secondly, when we look around the world, 
there's always been HR tech giants created in different parts of the world, whether in US or companies like LinkedIn and indeed in Australia, there's Seek in China, there's uh, most recently Boss Japan or Kanchun that has a huge IPO as well. But there's been none in Southeast Asia yet. So we believe that eventually there will be an enduring multi-billion profitable HR tech company that will emerge from Southeast Asia to serve the needs of the labor force in the region. Uh, and we hope to be that company. I have actually done some work prior to this interview to make sure I get some idea of how we're going to have this interview. So one of the things I've actually read about was the concept from you on what is called the borderless mindset. What does it entail? And maybe can you elaborate a little bit on how Glintz is promoting and facilitating this mindset in the talent industry itself? Because you talk about cross-border talent acquisition as well, right? So this would be something that's in your wheelhouse. Yeah, I think what we have found is borderless recruiting or cross-border recruiting is really one of the key strategies to help companies grow their talent base a lot more effectively and a lot more cost-efficiently so that they can grow properly in the current climate. But the old way of building up teams used to be that we'll want everyone in the same corporate headquarters, everyone in the same office. That's what most companies would do. The challenge with that is it's either very expensive or sometimes it's not even practical. Like the amount of job openings for software engineers in Singapore just outships the number of supply. So practically, they need to go offshore. And then the second way, the second traditional way of what companies would do is then they would say, okay, I can't find anyone in Singapore. Now I've got to outsource. So they would then work with traditional BPO firms or they would just outsource their entire projects to places like India, Pakistan, sometimes with Vietnam. Mm. The challenge with that is uh, you lose control and you're not really building up a team. You're not really building up a culture. You're just outsourcing projects. And then you don't actually get to maintain that quality as, as well over time. Another old way of working is people will hire freelancers and they will hire us here. I need to go global. I can't find anyone mm. in Singapore. I can't find anyone in Hong Kong. Let me just go global. I'll hire 1% in Pakistan, 1% in Eastern Europe, 1% in Latin America, 1% in India. And that's difficult as well because then you end up having a team of freelancers rather than a real team. And they don't really feel that they're part of a company. So the approach that we have found to work well is what we call building up talent hubs. So you can go across the border. Don't just limit yourself to a single country like Singapore, Australia, Hong Kong. You can go across the, mar- the borders to, to larger talent markets like Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, etc. But at the mm-hmm. same time, do it in a concentrated way. So it would help you to build up a hub, say a, a back office finance hub in Malaysia, an IT hub in Vietnam, or a sales and marketing support hub in Philippines or Indonesia where they have great English skills. And because there's a there is a critical mass of a number of people in each of these places. The people there still feel like they're part of the team. They will still come with the office as needed three or five times a week. And you have then a strong talent hub in that base that allows you to tap on that cost effectiveness. And at the same time, you are not giving up the benefits of in-person collaboration. Mm. Just if I can double click a little bit on this concept of a talent hub, right? Typically, let's say for businesses who use, let's say, Glintz, for example, to build out maybe a talent hub in, say, Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, for example, what's the critical mass typically you require to actually facilitate, you know, that kind of almost starting to become a team and becoming a, a company in that sense? Yeah, great question. It's actually not a huge number. We would we have learned that at least three people, it's all you need mm. to get started. Oh. At least three people is when you have a team. Uh, you know, one person is, is solo, two person is a pair, three is once you have a team. <laughs> so once you have three, uh, you're actually good to go. Yeah. 
Interesting. So then maybe what are the type of advantages then this approach actually brings to employees and job seekers? And I didn't think, how does it align with Glenn's uh, mission then in that way? Great question. For job seekers, firstly, it's a great opportunity for career development and career growth. And we have users now in Indonesia, in Vietnam, thousands of them who are in this emerging markets who are now working with employers regionally or from these other markets. And it's very good exposure for them because now in their eyes, they're now working for an international mm. company, right? They're not just only working for a local company. They're working for an international company. They are interacting with colleagues from Singapore, from Hong Kong, from Australia, trains their English skills as well. It, it forces them to have to use English as a working language most of the time. And so it's great for their career development. And the second thing, it's in terms of income potential, it's also much better for them. Even at the same time, while it, it's cost-saving for the Singapore or the Hong Kong employer, it's actually still a lot cheaper for them to hire in this market and they can still pay more than what a local firm would be paying these this people. So a lot of the job seekers are now earning more than that, what, what they did, 30-50% more than what they did in their prior jobs. And so both from a career development perspective and income perspective, it's a great uplift and it really then connects to our own mission, into a mission of realizing human potential. For Southeast Asia, it's actually a pretty diverse region with very varying talent needs and dynamics. What are the current trends that you're observing in the talent landscape itself across these different Southeast Asia countries? And how does Glynns have to tailor its approach to cater to these unique markets? Dealing with a market in Singapore is very different from dealing with, say, with a market in Philippines, Thailand, or Vietnam, for that matter. For sure. Uh, I think there are a couple of trends that we're seeing. The first is there has indeed been a slowdown in demand for hiring for tech talent. It's still there. It's still there. But it's definitely not as high as what it was during the tech boom and the tech bull run of the past few years. Correspondingly, though, there's actually been an increase in demand for revenue-generating roles. Because that's what many businesses realize they need now in today's mm. climate. Revenues, real money, <laughs> real, real cash, real money, right? So yep. a lot of companies are now still very aggressively growing their sales teams, uh, even their sales support teams. And so that sort of balances out the decrease in demand for tech talent. And so what we have done at Glimpse is also actively building out our supply for sales and marketing talent in the region so that we can meet the needs of employers on an ongoing basis. Uh, second thing we're seeing is businesses are looking to turn profitable. And that means getting leaner on, leaner on costs. And so what a lot of companies are now doing is they're looking at their P&L and they're thinking, which of these items do I really need to be based in a high-cost market like Singapore or, Kong, or Australia? Which of them can I actually build out in markets like Malaysia or, or Vietnam or Indonesia where it's a lot cheaper? So for example, back office, right? A lot of our clients are now looking at building our, their HR and finance teams in Malaysia rather than concentrating them in Singapore where it's so much more expensive. And so then we at help them to do this, build up their finance and HR hubs in Malaysia, where it's a lot more cost-effective and it gives them that cost-competitive advantage that compounds in the long run as a business. The third thing we're seeing is there is actually more interest for Southeast Asia now from other parts of the world. So there's this very popular true high uh, trend that we're seeing from China. Where mm. A lot of companies from China are now interested in expanding to Southeast Asia. And the first thing that they need to do to expand here is to find the right talent and the right people. So we have also set up uh, our own business development teams in China to help Chinese companies who are interested in expanding to this region build out their initial teams. So these are some of the trends that we're seeing. 
Interesting. So the Chinese entrepreneurs are coming into Southeast Asia. I was just with Shai Oster in a previous podcast talking about this. I didn't see that this has actually become also something that in the hiring space is actually also happening with Glint's as such. We yeah. see Glint's have come a long way from its early days where, you know, you just use Google spreadsheets, you know, to onboard a few employers and candidates. Today, you know, you have already in pretty large company being something like employer of record for different countries. Maybe can you talk about some of the pivotal moments that actually helped to propel Glint's uh, growth. I think now it's a 6 million talent platform with about 60,000 employers. Or maybe my numbers are, you can update me on that. Yeah, 6 million is about right. 55, 60,000 employers is about right. Uh, I think one of the key pivotal moments was really in about 2018, 2019, where we decided to be hyper-focused. And what we meant by that is we decided to cut off some of our product lines. Uh, we were looking for product market fit. We had been looking for product market fit for the preceding years, since 2015. And we tried many different things. We tried internship recruiting, we tried graduate recruiting, tried employer branding, we tried to monetize our job board very early, or we tried white labels. And we kept all of those going instead of, instead of really just doubling down what was working. So a pivotal moment for us was really looking at all of the product lines that we had. And we then decided that, hey, we had two product lines that were working out really well and that we were ready to monetize back then, which is technology-enabled hate hunting and cross-border recruiting. And with these other product lines that were generating revenue, but were either doing it at very low margins or even negative margins or very unscalably, and therefore were a distraction for the long term. We made a difficult decision back then to cut off these product lines, and we just focused on two product lines, which is matching and cross-border recruiting and hate hunting. And it was scary at first because that meant that revenues would drop in the short term. But it was look, looking back, it was one of the most important decisions and best decisions that we did as a company because it unleashed so much more capital and management bandwidth to focus on what was truly important. We had a single North Star as a company and that drove so much more momentum down the road. I think had we continued having that this big portfolio of items and big portfolio of bets, we might not have made it as, made it as a company. So I think the importance of focus, having the courage to make the tough calls to cut mm. away things that are not working is really critical. I think for founders and entrepreneurs, that's one thing that I've learned. And building a successful startup often also involves learning from mistakes. Maybe the thing is, could you elaborate a little bit on some of the key challenges, setbacks that you faced in the early stages? And maybe what would you have done differently? Or how does this experience, I think you talk about pivotal moments, but you talk about what could you have done differently then? Uh, Brother, I made so many mistakes over the years. I think a one-hour podcast may not be sufficient for that. <laughs> we, can, we can have a date on yeah, that we, someday, but not today, right? <laughs> but yeah, lots of, lots of mistakes and challenges. The very first mistake, sort of the big mistake, in the early years was people, right? That I shared about earlier. The not spending enough attention on the people side, whether that's getting the right board in place or getting the right management team in place, having the right hiring system and process in place to, to make sure that we have the right people. And what it meant is that if we don't have the right people, we can't execute the strategy. Mm. And, and that, that continues to be ongoing learning, right? What I've learned even as we scale the company is that the people and building that team is not a once and done thing. It's not about building up the best team of the Series A, Series B, and then you're done. Uh, the reality is there will be people that may get outskilled by the company. There may be people that were just strong for a certain stage in a different context, but the context has changed. There will be new people that you need to bring in because the strategy has evolved. And that's really, really critical. Just ongoing attention to making sure that 
um, you have the right team in place. You are making the tough calls and the tough conversations, difficult conversations to necessary to make sure you have the right team in place as well. That's one big piece. Second, it's again, focus. We overextended ourselves sometime previously where we expanded into too many markets. All at the same time, it was a bit like everything, everywhere, all at once. We did multiple markets, multiple product lines. We launched new business ventures all at the same time. Instead of just focusing on cranking up our existing business, which was really working. And that was a big mistake because that diluted the focus for the company. And it's very tempting to want to do more things as a founder, as an entrepreneur. You have more ideas, a lot of opportunities that you see, but mm. it's a mistake to, to stretch ourselves too thin. And it's really important, I've learned, to just focus on that one or two things that's working doubling down on that as a company and then scaling that up a hundred times, a thousand times before doing too many things. Yeah. Mm. I, I like the point that you made about focus. So I think one of the things that came out from this conversation was that there was a pivotal moment where you identified the right product market fit, which is actually very crucial for many, many companies, startups, large scale enterprises as well. One question I'm pretty curious is, can you tell me through how the process looked like when you found that sweet spot in the industry and what were the signs that tell you that these are the two things that you identify i think it was cross uh, border talent acquisition and then trying to build out these talent hubs these were the two things that you say okay these are the focus it is and now i'm going to double down just on this yeah. and then I'll move everybody towards that yeah great question our important insight that we had was a reframing of the question from just building things that people want to building a repeatable sales engine for the first few years, we knew that we needed product market fit. But the questions we were asking ourselves was, how do we make something that people want? It was a very important principle that Y Combinator, YC made popular, right? Build things that people wanted, and you'll be an important company. You'll be a good company. But we realized that that wasn't sufficient because we had something that people wanted. We had users that were signing up every day, every week, thousands of them every month. So we had something that people want. We also had even things that people are paying for. Employers are paying us to run employee branding campaigns, graduate recruitment events, white labels. So we had things that people want. The issue with that was that a lot of those business models or business lines were not repeatable or they were in too small a market or not scalable. And so what was the turning point for us was reframing the question to having a repeatable sales engine. And we realized that we, what, what it then looked like, what success looked like was having a repeatable funnel and doing it possibly, knowing that you put in a dollar at the top, more than $1 will come out. And then growing that because it's repeatable. You know exactly what the conversion rates are. We can then grow that infinitely. And making sure that that's in a big enough market. That was also a big criteria for us. So that was an important turning point for us in finding product market fit, which is having a repeatable sales engine, mm. focusing on building that. And the moment we know that it was, hey, that we sort of know what the conversion rates from each stage to each stage is that we know that we have something repeatable and it was it was something that was keep scaling and growing. Yeah. Mm. One thing I capture across the different questions so far is you talk about focus, right? Mm. You decided to focus and double down on the things that matter. But mm. as what you have said, the company if uh, is also scaling at the same time. And there will be a need at some point to think about diversify again, right? So what I want to get to double click a little bit here is between focus and diversify, say you have reached a certain scale, you have doubled down, everything is in place, is, a, is running like a good engine. What will be the criteria for you to decide if you want to go back to some of those other ideas you have and diversify or maybe the startup process have got you to really just 
being single focused on something and try not to have too many distractions? Good question. I think, of course, to grow, you have to do new things. If you're only doing the same thing in the same markets with the same people, with the same set of customers, then you, you won't be growing. So, so I think the first thing is making sure that it's consistent with what we call the hedgehog principle. It's something that we, we are a big fan of from mm. the book Go to Great by Jim Collins. Right, the idea that uh, you want to be more like a hedgehog than a fox. And a hedgehog is really good at one thing, which is curling up when predators come. A fox tries many different tricks, but it's not as effective. And it's intersection of what you can be best in the world at, what you're passionate about, and what you can make money on. Right? So, so you want to be very, very sure that whatever you are doing is consistent with the hedgehog principle. And for us, that is recruiting in Southeast Asia. And when you find yourself diversifying too much away from that hedgehog. And we made that we made the mistake in the early years of confusing ourselves when we started to do education. We started going to education businesses, for example. But we started to look at it as a business rather than lead generation for our core business too early. And that was then a lack of focus because we were diversifying our business lines too early outside of our core competence, which is recruiting and helping employers build their teams. And that was a mistake. The second thing I would say then is even within the hedgehog, even within your business model, there are still many different things that you can expand or diversify into. So for example, a big focus for us right now is to diversify into enterprises. We have been doing a lot of startups and SMB sales to get us this far. We realize we have to diversify into enterprises. So, so we are doing that, but that is still consistent with our focus of the business model. Hmm. So what is the one thing you know about Glens and the HR industry now in Southeast Asia that very few do? Oh, then I, I wouldn't want to say that. <laughs> uh, we, we, we think that there's a lot of potential with cross-border recruiting. Or a lot of um, employers are more and more looking at recruiting outside of their home market, whether it's market expansion or whether it's to build up complementary talent hubs. So that's something that we're really doubling down. Yeah. So who are Glenn's current investors and how do they help mm-hmm. Glenn's as the company grows? I know because I spoke to Pink, he's one of your investors. Yeah, on the yeah. podcast. Ping great, yeah, Ping has been a great mentor and investor. He started out as a mentor first and it's even invested now too. Very glad to have him on board. So Ping Amongst Hill, I think invested since our Series B of $6 million round. And they bring that very unique entrepreneurial perspective because a lot of them are operators, entrepreneurs themselves. So they really understand the challenges that we go through. I just had a call with Ping like two nights ago at night, right? just talking through some of the challenges that, that we're facing now and, and was coaching and advising, mentoring me through them. We also have a strategic investor. So the way we think about our board and our lead investors is we try to have different perspectives, right? So we have someone like Ping from Monk's Hill, who is, who is entrepreneurial, who is an operator. We have um, Persol Holdings, who is a strategic, they're one of the largest HR company in APAC. And so they bring a very unique perspective as well, because mm-hmm. if you only have a board of VCs, then you kind of like the industry perspective. So we have someone who comes with the industry. In our recent Series B round, we added two investors from BCM Ventures and Lavender Hill Capital. And they're very connected in the Chinese market. And what has enabled us is to have that almost time machine effect because the Chinese tech market is a couple of years ahead of Southeast Asia. So we had a lot of insights as to what worked, what didn't work in their markets. And they also help us to tap on some of these broader trends around like the true high opportunity that I spoke about earlier. And then not to forget, we have one of our earliest stage investors, um, Fresco Capital, that has been with us since our seed Series A days. And they have so much context in the company. And they continue to help us when thinking about incubating new projects as well. Uh, and just all these people coming in together to form a very diverse board. 
and we've mm. been very fortunate to have them. Yeah. Recently, I did a panel on Southeast Asia with a few notable VCs in the X80 network, AGM. One of the questions been up is the fundraising is a very challenging, especially during economic downturns now, but maybe the market is coming back next year. So what advice do you have for founders who are trying to secure funding in this uncertain times? Maybe you can reflect and think about maybe what are the strategies or approaches that have worked well for Glint's? I think one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten for fundraising is if you build a good business, the money will come. And it, it sounds very cheesy, but it's really true from what I've found. Just focus on building a good business with strong unit economics that's differentiated. It's a good mode in the long run. And you'll be able to raise funds. I, that's, that's what I really believe in. That's what we have learned as well. I think the, the rounds that has been the easiest for us was, because, was not because we did our storyboarding or our pitching right in a certain way. I think that made a difference, telling a story the right way. But it was more because we had a good business and we we're building up a good business in the preceding years and we had the right traction, the right metrics to show for it. The rounds that were the hardest to raise was generally when our own fundamentals and execution was weak. And therefore, it was hardest to, to get investors on board. And truly, even if you did, uh, you would then have a lot of a lot of fixing and sort of, of cleaning up to do afterwards. So I think... Focusing on building a good business with strong foundations, think about the long term, uh, have good fundamentals, and you will be able to raise funds, I believe. Yeah. Mm. Also, as talent um, technology continues to rise in Southeast Asia, how do you envisage now Glenn's role in shaping the region's future, at least in the talent and acquisition development side? And what are the specific innovations or strategies that now you're very excited about? I know generative AI is one of them. <laughs> yeah. We see a big opportunity to really transform the industry. I think the first is mm. we see this long tail of job seekers in markets like Indonesia and Vietnam. They're super understood by the traditional agencies and traditional job boards. And they exist in different parts of Indonesia, right? Outside of Jakarta as well. So just going after the long tail of employers and job seekers is a big focus for us at the moment. Doing it in a way that's mobile first, that's taking an AI recommendation approach first instead of relying on users to search for jobs. It's a big focus because that exposes them to different opportunities that they wouldn't have searched for otherwise. So I really think that we can make a huge impact there. Second way is really cross-border recruiting, looking at different ways that we can help employers tap onto a wider talent pool to unlock that talent pool beyond just their home borders, whether it's for market expansion or whether it's to build up augmentation teams. So connecting the dots across Southeast Asia. And third is really using technology to make the recruiting process more efficient. I think there is a lot of buzz around generative AI. But the way we think about that is we don't only want to start with, with the technology. We want to start with the business problem, the business needs. So we look at what are the things that's taking up the most time for our customers, for our own recruiters. And for example, that can be creating job descriptions or that can be trying to convert a resume into structured data onto the platform, a structured profile. And we use generative AI and and technology to simplify these processes mm. to lead to the efficiency uplift. Yeah. Generative AI definitely has a significant process in terms of talent acquisition. I think you alluded to that. Maybe I want to maybe go a little bit deeper. How do you think generative AI say will influence these strategies for talent acquisition and retention? You know, when Ping was on my show, he talked about the internet business model is going to go from a very transactional business model to now a very highly retention, higher lifetime value type business model because the generative AI is like a coach to the person and then it starts to build that long-term relationship. So how does that actually help to enhance your entire 
hiring, recruiting, and even retaining talent process? How we think about it is there's absolutely a potential for generative AI to transform business models by going from just pure transactions to having longer-term relationships between the platform or the product and the customer. But mm. I think underpinning all of this, it's what's really important, and we think people don't talk enough about it, it's having the proprietary data to do that. It's easy to slap on a chat GP, uh, board or a GPT that just does something in a, in a certain vertical. But that's not, differentiate, that's not differentiated, and that's not really meaningful in the long run. What we think is really important is to first have a product or a service or a platform that builds up that proprietary data that over time you can then layer on all of these chatbots or generative AI solutions to, to build to then compound upon. Uh, that's why we've been lucky to now have at Lens. I think we, we have now been building this for the past eight years. We have millions of job seekers on the platform, millions of job applications happening every month on the platform. And that gives us data as to proprietary data as to what this job seeker likes, mm -hmm. what this job seeker is interested in, what this employer likes, what this employer doesn't like, what kind of candidates do they like. And then this proprietary database allows us to then build upon new technologies on top of that. And so we think that that's something that's really important that is not spoken about, which is what's, what will be important behind the generative AI. I think it's the data and the proprietary data that your business can create and generate over time. So I have a traditional closing question. What does great look like for Glynns in the next decade? We would like to still be around and building an enduring company, right? A big part of why many of us at Glynns are building what we want. It's we hope that our children and grandchildren can be using Glynns to grow their careers as well. So we want this to be an enduring company. Our mission is to help realize human potential. And we would like to be building a company that's here to last. That's one. Two, it's I think concretely, we see a lot of opportunities in the platform business and in our cross-border business. We want to double down in this market, getting to market leadership in the market that we're playing in, Indonesia, Vietnam, and also expanding out to the new markets for cross-border recruiting, helping employers around the world tap onto that 300 million labor force in Southeast Asia and helping them to hire the people here. So also yeah. many thanks for coming on the show. And uh, in closing, I have two questions. My first one is any recommendations that have inspired you recently? I will go back again into the importance of focus and also getting involved in yeah understanding what drives a business, understanding what differentiates a business, really boiling it down to first principles, the details of the first principles, I think it's really important. And having the courage to make the tough calls to have the right focus, to cut off things that are not working or to shrink things that are not working, I think it's really, really important as well. Yeah, mm. a book that has inspired me lately was How the Mighty Falls by Jim Collins as well. It talks about, ah. it's sort of like the reverse of Good to Create. It talks about how great companies fall and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of good lessons there too. Yeah. I think it's a good book, but it seems to be very underrated, very little mentions on it. I think this is a very good recommendation. I think a lot yeah. of people like Good to Great, but they forgot How the Mighty Fall. So how did yeah. my audience find you? You can find me on Twitter, I think, or x.com slash Oswald, you or LinkedIn. And my email is Oswald at Gideon's.com. So many thanks for coming on the show. And of course, you can find our podcast on YouTube and of course, all across all different podcasting channels itself. Drop us a feedback at analyze.asia and subscribe to our newsletter. Also, have a very happy new year and uh, we'll continue to have a chat. Thanks, Bernard, for the thoughtful questions. Happy new year. <laughs> <laughs>